Reginald's interview with Cuthbert. When Reginald first entered Cuthbert's office at 8.30 a.m. sharp, he blinked, at first almost inconspicuously and then far more violently. It seemed to him that either his own eyes had melted somewhat or that the office was made of a kind of wax that could not sustain its own weight when exposed to oxygen. Not that there seems to be much in here, he thought, taking a gulp of breath. His eyes travelled to the ceiling fan, which did not move, but hung in a wilting fashion. Then he noticed a potted plant, something like a fern, which hung its leaves over a dark pot with the arc of barrels, thrown overboard by desperate sailors on a sinking ship. The furniture seemed to sag, as well as if underwater and affected by rot. The man behind the desk, Mr. Rathbone, he reminded himself, also seemed to be seeking some kind of lazy consummation with the earth's core. The bald head had a fringe of longish, lank hair hanging over the ears, like oil slowly threading its way off a pink dome. The chin—chins, rather—must have presented various difficulties to the knotting of ties, and Reginald suddenly imagined several servants holding up the jowls with some sort of device, possibly the same kind as builders used to carry bricks up ladders, while another servant knotted the tie, reaching into the flesh— for the delicate operation, like a veterinarian groping for a breached calf. The shoulders were almost at one with the upper arms. The chest was similarly intimate with the belly. Reginald could not see Cuthbert's legs, but had an idea that they sort of meandered under the desk, trailing off like tentacles. Standing before this slow, arrested waterfall of vision, Reginald straightened his own back slightly, then bowed. "'Good morning, Mr. Rathbone,' he said. "'Mr. Spencer,' said Cuthbert slowly. Once as a child, Reginald had watched a football game going on a great distance away, and had been fascinated by the span of time between the ball being kicked and the faint thwap hitting his ears. Similarly, Mr. Rathbone's mouth worked for at least a second before it produced sound. Reginald was fascinated. Cuthbert's eyes seemed like two black holes. They did not blink. There seemed no need to. The eyelids were so low that Reginald thought of a window with the shutters almost down. The man inside would never awaken. The colors on his walls would never fade. There would never be any shadows. It would be like the inside of a cloud. Reginald shivered. The man sitting before him was perfect. Perfect in a way which was almost impossible to define. It hit the senses so completely. Almost everyone I meet, thought Reginald in a flash, is only part of a certain principle, or is a little land of warring principles, or speaks of principles they would break in a flash for a handshake or a halfpenny. But this man is a principle. He is Perfect. Reginald felt something loosen within him. It was a gentle kind of falling, a relief, like someone who has waited in suspense for a sagging wall to finally give way. 
Something which could never have stood has finally fallen. Now the way is clear, the view is clear, and we can move forward at last. Reginald got the distinct impression that Cuthbert was following his thoughts with the practiced ease of a devil lazy in the certainty of temptation. This one is already mine. He needs not even a push, but rather only a concluding wink. Please, Mr. Spencer, said Cuthbert slowly. His hand did not rise to gesture at the chair, but Reginald thought he saw a slithering ripple of movement under the cloth covering the man's forearm. Thank you, said Reginald. What can I do for you? asked Cuthbert. Reginald noticed that the man's telephone was covered in dust. No, the receiver was not, but the telephone itself was. Uh, he murmured, forcing his eyes upwards. I have come on the recommendation of a friend, Mr. Frederick Egerton. You want to work for me, said Cuthbert. Yes. Why? Because I believe that the Foreign Office has a great mission. You do? Yes. Tell me. Reginald laughed. Well, I would scarcely deign to instruct you about... I did not ask you to instruct me. Cuthbert's words could seem sharp or critical, but they were not. He simply stated a fact, as one might say to a waiter, I did not ask for a cup of coffee. Reginald nodded. Another part of his wall gave way. He said, I believe that England must do its part to keep peace in the world. As an ex-academic, Reginald was so used to stopping to gather implicit agreement from his listener that he had developed a slightly staccato method of speaking. He noticed that Cuthbert did not give any indication whatsoever as to his opinion of Reginald, and this caused Reginald to forget what he was about to say. "'Do not look for my approval, young man,' said Cuthbert. "'Positions here are neither won nor maintained by flattery.' "'I—' Reginald felt a little butterfly of delight come loose and flutter about in his ribcage. "'He knows. He sees. "'I think that England will soon detach itself from its empire, "'and that that process will be delicate and slow, detailed. We will have to navigate some very tricky waters. And there is the matter of the dictator nations. If this man Hitler gets in, we shall have a new situation, unprecedented since Napoleon. It was no use. Cuthbert's lack of response kept derailing him. Blood pumped into his cheeks, and he suddenly felt very angry. He wanted to leap over the desk and strike this melted, shapeless figure sitting across from him. "'Who are you to judge me?' he screamed internally, and for a moment his leg muscles jumped, and he was a hair's breadth from leaping up and storming from the room. "'I say,' murmured Cuthbert. There was a leathery creak as the man's chair complained, but Reginald could see no actual movement. "'You are—' he continued. A rather intense fellow, aren't you? Reginald smiled in a rather sickly manner. From the heights of cloud-wreathed rage he ploughed into the wet earth of humiliation. Yes, my, 
My wife would have to agree with you, he said. Now that has my attention, said Cuthbert. Tell me about your wife. My wife? Yes. Well, she is tall and very lovely. We met in Spain, married right away. It's rather thorny with her family. They have cut her off. We hope to change things with a baby. I speak German and French quite well. Cuthbert nodded slowly. Yes, I can see that. Marriage in Spain, right away. Very intense indeed. A pause settled on the pair. Reginald felt prickles down the back of his neck. Not sweat, just tension. He felt as if this room had become all of reality. He could no longer imagine the world outside. London, the streets, the people, even the receptionist outside were all gone. This was a universe of one room. The door behind him would now only open on a brick wall or black space. Nothing would rush in, nothing could get out. But strangely, all he wanted was to get this job. I will not fail in this interview. I will not crawl back to Oxford to waste five years getting a doctorate while real men in the real world perform real actions. What I write at Oxford will be shelved to feed worms. What I write here would shape history. And then, as Cuthbert's glazed eyes gazed at him, Reginald had a sudden inspiration. I came here because there are no other jobs, he said with a flashing, tentative smile. Cuthbert's eyes did not change expression, but they seemed to focus somewhat. Reginald felt that his share of the attention of Cuthbert's entire personality had risen from 2% to perhaps 10%. I am going to be a father, he continued. My wife has money, but we can't get at it. I think that I could be good at this job, but I don't have any real ideas about how to do it. Everyone knows what the economy is like. Anyone who comes in here and tells you how fascinating foreign affairs are is not telling the whole truth. But I don't want to come here and hide behind a desk. I think it would be interesting work. I am at your mercy, but I am qualified. Reginald forced himself to stop. He was actually quite fascinated to hear what he would have to say next. He was discovering quite a bit about himself through the process of speaking extemporaneously. He waited to see what Cuthbert would say. Go on. Right, said Reginald, sitting forward in his chair. His face muscles seemed to be pulling in too many directions. I wonder what I shall say next. I think that the last war was a great mistake. Negotiations should have won out, and Versailles was beyond awful. It has set the stage for what we face now. Germans are weird. They can't coexist. They can only be masters or slaves. But they are very efficient, which makes them dangerous, because all modern wars are wars of attrition. No, that wasn't working at all. Cuthbert's eyes were glazing over even more. But that is only important if I get the job, and even then, only after many years, when I am in a position to dictate policy, assuming you have retired, of course, Reginald said with a little giggle. What is more important is that I am having great doubts about my marriage, which means that I shall be more than happy to travel, and to be willing and able to spend a lot of hours in the office, even when I don't have to. But I will want to protect my 
children. We are going to have more than one, of course, probably to keep Wendy busy so she can stop making lists of things for me to do. And my language skills are really impeccable. And I am a modern man. I don't believe in all this rot about the honor of the empire. It's a vain, costly proposition to run the world, and it has broken our back financially. And really, what's wrong with letting the Indians get back to killing themselves? Why would I want to face Ekin? Why would I have to be out of job prospects so that some Hindus I will never meet will keep their daggers in their scabbards? It's nonsense. England for the English, I say. Cuthbert's eyes were definitely amused now. It was not condescension. Giving the older man only the briefest of glances, Reginald plunged on. And we can't have guns and butter, not now that capitalism is in ruins. We'll have no choice but to negotiate, because the working man must have his tea. War has become inconceivable. I really want this job, Mr. Rathbone. The more I talk about it, the more excited I become. But please don't let me babble. Tell me if I have any chance, any kind of chance at all. There was another long pause, and Reginald knew that words were gathering in Cuthbert's throat like seagulls on a streak of bloody sea. "'I don't imagine,' he said finally, "'that we shall find much use for you as a diplomat at the moment, Mr. Spencer, "'since you either lie badly or tell too much truth. "'A diplomat must never be seen to be thinking aloud. "'Policy is never decided on the spur of the moment.' A diplomat is a mouthpiece. He is not paid to think, but to speak the words of others. An actor would be a better metaphor. They are chosen for their plausibility and their grooming. The language skills can be important, but it is rarely a good thing for those we negotiate with to know that we speak their language flawlessly. Misinterpretation can be a perfectly valid strategy. So there, what weighs for you also weighs against you. But you see, you are a conflicted man, which is entirely suitable to your age and lack of experience, and that can never do. Composure is essential. To negotiate, your inner state must be utterly inaccessible. Cuthbert smiled. Finally, it was not for the faint of heart. And there is no better way to be inaccessible to others than to be inaccessible to yourself. But that is for another time. Reginald's ears pricked up at the last phrase, which was of a decidedly positive nature. If you want to work... From the foreign office, it is essential that you become a foreigner to yourself, to your native land, your family, children, and cherished personal opinions. Like a policeman, you can have no opinion about the law. None. We are not interested in your thoughts, Mr. Spencer. Save your intensity for the amateur stage or an affair. Now, it is my belief that you are still not telling me the entire truth, Mr. Spencer. I do not criticize you for this. You have spoken more truth here today than I have heard in a good while. Perhaps more truth than you yourself have heard in a good while. But it is not enough. 
I am an exacting taskmaster, Mr. Spencer. If you want to negotiate for England, you shall have to lie a good deal. And I allow no man on my staff to lie without knowing the truth. To lie without knowing the truth is to lie incompetently, Mr. Spencer. And if there is one thing I hate, it is incompetence. So tell me why you are interested in this job. Reginald spoke instantly. I want to use the sacrifice of my academic career as a weapon against my wife. Cuthbert's lidded eyes closed. A sensual thrill coursed almost visibly through his sloping body. He seemed to hear a high, lovely note that only a connoisseur can appreciate. When he spoke, his voice was whispery, paper-thin. You have the job, Mr. Spencer. Cuthbert's eyes did not open, but Reginald did not know that since his own were closed. Tom's walk back home with Klaus. Something irreparable had occurred between Klaus and Tom on the day they had first soared into the skies together. Having started with admiring Klaus for his ability to stand up to his father, then having almost fallen in love with him as they flew, so great had his love of flying turned out to be, the day had started out well. Finally, though, the afternoon with Count Orsky and the insinuating threat of the blue-uniformed precision flyers, combined with Klaus's gruesome pleasure in their display of power, utterly broke their growing companionship. Tom felt deep in his soul that he had gotten everything from Germany that he had come for. After taking their leave of Count Orsky and the pilots, they began to walk back towards Martin's house. The afternoon was shading into evening but it seemed to Tom that it was not the light that was failing, but his vision. As he walked along in silence, the surrounding countryside began to weigh horribly on him. The countryside in daylight can seem lovely and rustic, in the deepening gloom of a coming twilight it can seem grotesque. All the old terrors of the Middle Ages seemed to come back, hunchbacks being tortured to drive out devils women being whipped for tempting priests, altar-boys being lured into groping up a cassock, slit-eyed Spanish men with little beards and long-nailed hands caressing Bibles, speaking softly and snipping off penises. Or just dull, brute, rural, drinking violence. Nothing sadistic, not really, just thrashings for stupid things, nothing things, chores forgotten or a plate dropped. Children being treated as livestock, or worse. Heavy blows, heavier remorse, sweaty rape. Everything that can go wrong when families live far from each other, where evil can hide in a canyon of solitude. This is what Tom seemed to see as they walked along the uneven path back towards the house of Klaus's childhood. The dark houses seemed like the pens of hurt and snarling animals. The wooden fences looked as if they should have shrunken heads hanging from them. Tom tried to remember what the English countryside looked like at this time of night. He recalled being frightened as a child as night fell. Shadows held beady eyes, 
Trees reached for things. Roots tripped him. Holes held snakes and arms. But it was more as if nature had turned malevolent. Now, as they walked along, it seemed as if nature herself lay in fear and trembling before the inhabitants of this land. Wolves would rather eat themselves than be caught by such hunters. Squirrels would hurl themselves off cliffs. Trees would withdraw their roots and die of thirst rather than be stripped and skewered by such black woodsmen. Tom imagined flames on the horizon and the terror of a natural world which could not survive the self-destruction of man. All the animals of history overhead in the constellations, perhaps, gathering to view the death of all their offspring. Some very disappointed initial proteins, broken-hearted that it had all been in vain, all the billions of years and millions of tries. Tom shuddered in the dark. But there is nothing in the world but what I bring to it. He turned to look at Klaus, who strode along a few feet away in another deep wagon rut. I do not understand that boy. What has happened to him? So intelligent and affectionate, without a doubt. So much promise, but something has been ripped out of him, something which is supposed to right him when he falls over. But now he just falls and falls and does not notice that he is falling, and so he reaches out to shake men's hands and pulls them down with him. And he does not know anything about himself. He can love me and love Count Orsky as well. And those creepy pilots, what can that mean? He can love me and, and love Reginald as well. There is no consistency in his soul. And I could corner him right here, right now, and push him deep into the hedge, and he would say, his face dark with leaves, Very well, I contradict myself. And then we shall have nothing else to say to each other. There will be a murder or a parting of the ways. There can be nothing else, not in the long run. Something has happened, murmured Klaus, startling Tom. There was a pause. Can you feel it? asked Klaus. The world is different. More silence. Tom did not want to feed the boy's mysticism, but he did feel it, so he could say neither yes nor no. It is the biggest thing, said Klaus decisively. Perhaps the biggest thing. Tom shivered again, although it was not too cold. Something seemed to be hanging over them from the heavens, an endless weight that could drop any time. History is dead, murmured Klaus, flexing his hands. No. History is gone. We have passed the threshold. Something has arisen that will take us with it, wherever it goes. It cannot be resisted. It will... Something in Klaus faltered, and he glanced at Tom. Their eyes met for a brief moment, and then Klaus looked down. You shall have to return to England, he said after almost a minute. I truly appreciate your hospitality, said Tom with some feeling. Klaus nodded. The sky was almost dark. 
they were navigating only through the shapes of shadows. It took many hours to walk the remainder of the distance. They each stuck to the little trenches of the ruts they walked, treading parallel lines that could never meet, a no-man's land of tufted grass between them. Tom was never able to remember what he thought about during those hours. He had a dread, a terrible dread, a dread almost of existence, a dread which could not be assuaged by reference to hard reality. He had a feeling that were he to look at the Mona Lisa at that moment, her eye sockets would be empty, her smile vapid and ear missing, or that he would walk around the statue of David and see that the white back was covered with leprous sores. And, although it felt that the night would never end, they did at last come to the house they had left that morning. A swarm of siblings came down the back steps to meet them. Scraps of words floated in the air. It has finally happened. The future is upon us. God's will is clear. The peasants have spoken. The past is no more. Neither Tom nor Klaus spoke as they climbed the steps. They both felt that they were adrift on some current that would fall away if they moved even a single muscle. They both knew that something had happened. Before, they had looked at the world and acted. Now the world was acting, and all they could do was look. Inside, the radio was playing softly. A triumphant, sneering, exultant voice wriggled out with the speaker like maggots through a grill. Martin was sitting in his armchair, his chin resting in his hands. He had a look of serenity on his face. It was not beatific, it was not religious at all. His muscles seemed to have gone completely slack, but he was not horrified. He had the look of a man who has lived for years in terror of disease, and who has been given six months to live. The waiting is over. Renata sat across from him on a little stool. She was leaning forward, holding one of his hands. Her forehead pressed against it, her hair loose, falling down from the slow convulsion of her shoulders, like the rippling of a vomiting cat, Tom knew she was crying. Not blubbering as he did in a vaguely pleasurable, sentimental manner, no. She was crying tears of endless agony. The tears of a parent whose child has just died. Tears without end. The down payment on a debt of salt that can never be paid. Martin did not look up when Klaus and Tom came in with the other children. He leaned forward slowly and kissed his wife's hair. She sobbed once very loudly, making Tom's heart lurch painfully. One by one, the children detached themselves from the two young men and slowly walked, almost seeming to float, towards their weeping mother. Tom thought of bees and pollen and felt his own nose sting. As the children reached her, they put their arms around her and lay their heads on her back, her head, her arms. It was like watching a mother being buried by the bodies of her offspring. And a thought came to Tom. She enclosed them, now they enclose her. As her children's bodies covered her, Renata sobbed more loudly. 
Her free hand wandered around their legs, caressing convulsively, obsessively, like a blind woman bidding goodbye to a lover's features. After a minute or so, Klaus stepped forward. He, too, seemed to be beyond the reach of gravity and floated towards his mother. He joined the small mountain of crying children, crying mother, and pressed his face to the top. He was crying as well. Tom felt acutely uncomfortable. This was too private a moment to be viewed by a guest. He stepped forward, but then stopped, startled, as a tectonic maternal movement rippled up from under the hillock of children. You! shouted Renata, struggling up. You could have fought this! She rose from her children like a cresting whale, her face a dark sea of matriarchal rage. Tom expected her to throw herself at her husband, a hissing blur of nails. But she did not. She turned to Klaus. God! she shouted, pushing him away. You never say anything! Now was the time to have spoken up! What were you paid for? To protect us! To protect your brothers and sisters! Mother! He cried, his face wide, his eyes stricken, his arms raised. She jabbed a ferocious finger at him as if she were spearing his image. You were paid to guard these gates! Where were you? Tom expected Martin to say something, but he looked on the scene with blank indifference. It could have been prevented by a word from you! shouted Renata. Her children drew back from her in one step, almost in unison. One word from any of you, but you, you said nothing, and now can never speak, and, and Tom will have to save us from ourselves, from people like you. Renata strode forward and pushed her eldest son hard in the chest. Dazed, Klaus stumbled back against the radio. It fell against the floor with a bang. The volume jumped up from a grating whine to a terrifying scream. Chancellor Hitler has also closed the Reichstag, that abortion of the Republic, and has outlawed all political parties except the National Socialist. Furthermore, Tom closed his eyes. Renata fell to the ground. The tide of children moved in again, like water refilling a hole in water. This is the author, Stefan Molyneux. Please support what I am doing at freedomain.com forward slash donate.